Chapter Twelve, Part Five, of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linny. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two by John Banyal Bury. Chapter 12, Part 5 Sparta at the Gates of the Peloponnesus, the Corinthian War At the same time, she was suffering serious checks nearer home. Olegesilaus was meditating his wonderful schemes against Persia, war had broken out in Greece between Sparta and her allies, and the turn it took rendered it imperative to recall him from Asia. It is necessary to go back a little to explain. After the battle of the Goat's River, Sparta had kept for herself all the fruits of victory. She had taken over the maritime empire of her prostrate foe, and enjoyed its tribute. Her allies had got nothing, and yet they had made far greater sacrifices than Sparta herself. Throughout the Peloponnesian War, any demands made by Corinth and other allies who had borne the burden and heat of those years were haughtily rejected. Lacedaemon felt herself strong enough to treat her former friends with contempt. She further exhibited her despotic temper by her proceedings within the Peloponnesus against those who had displeased her. Alice had given her repeated and recent grounds of offense, and Alice was now chastised. King Agis invaded and ravaged the country, and imposed severe conditions on the Aeleans. They were deprived of their Triphylian territory, of Silene their port, and of other places, and were compelled to pull down the incomplete fortifications of their city. The only grace accorded to them was that they should still have the privilege of conducting the Olympian festival. The Spartans indulged another grudge by expelling from Naupactus and Cephalenia the residue of the Messenians who had settled in those places. The exercise of authority within the Peloponnesus was regarded by Sparta as an ordering of her own domain, but she also began vigorously to assert her power in the north of Greece. She resuscitated into new life her colony of Heraclea near Thermopylae, and pushing into Thessaly, she placed a Lacedaemonian garrison in Harmost, in Pharsalus. When war broke out between Persia and Sparta, it was the policy of Persia to excite a war in Greece against her enemy, and fan the smoldering discontent of the secondary Greek powers into a flame. The satrap, Tithraustus, sent a Rhodian agent named Timocrates, with fifty talents, to bribe the leading statesmen of the chief cities to join Persia in the league of hostility against Sparta. Timocrates visited Argos, Corinth and Thebes, and gained over some of the most influential people. But it really required only an assurance of Persian cooperation, and then a favorable occasion to raise a general resistance to the ascendancy of Lacedaemon. The first aggression, however, came from Lacedaemon herself. A trifle, a border dispute between Phocis and Opuntian Locris, furnished the occasion, the Locrians appealing to Thebes, the Phocians to Lacedaemon for support. The Lacedaemonians, according to their friend Xenophon, rejoiced to have a pretext for attacking Thebes 
and chastising her in silence. A double invasion of Boeotia was arranged, King Posanius advancing from the south, and Lysander coming down from Heraclea on the north. Thus threatened, Thebes turned for aid to her old enemy, for whose utter destruction she had pleaded a few years ago. Athens had been steadily recovering a measure of her prosperity. The oligarchical party seems to have already merged its own ambitions in loyalty to the democratic majority, which had shown such generosity in the day of its triumph. And in the debate of the Theban request for aid, men of all parties alike voted to seize the opportunity for attempting to break free from Spartan rule. The decision was felt to be bold, since the Piraeus was unfortified, but there was also a feeling that the tide was at the flood. Conon was sailing the southeastern seas, Rhodes had revolted, the moment must not be lost. So there was concluded an eternal alliance between the Boeotians and Athenians. The phrase, pregnant with the irony of history, has been preserved on a fragment of the original treaty stone, and it shows at least the enthusiastic hopes of the hour. When Lysander approached Boeotia, he was joined by Archimedes, which was always bitterly hostile to Theban supremacy in Boeotia. He and Pausanias had arranged to meet near Haliartus, which is about halfway between Thebes and Orchomenus. It isn't certain whether Lysander was too soon or Pausanias too late, but Lysander arrived in the district of Haliartus first and attacked the town. From their battlements, the men of Haliartus could descry a band of Thebans coming along the road from Thebes some time before the danger was visible to their assailants, and they suddenly sallied forth from the gates. Taken by surprise and attacked on both sides, Lysander's men were driven back, and Lysander was slain. His death was a loss to Sparta, which she could not make good. He had made her empire such as it was, and she had no other man of first-rate ability. But the death of the Spartan Lysander was no loss to Greece. Pausanias soon came up, and his first object was to recover the corpse of his dead colleague. He was strong enough to extort this from the Thebans and Heliardians, but an Athenian army came up at the same moment to their assistance under the leadership of Thrasybulus. Pausanias was in a difficult predicament. To fight meant to incur defeat, but to acknowledge weakness by asking for a burial truce was galling to Spartan pride. A council of war, however, decided to beg for a truce. And, when the Thebans, contrary to usage, would grant it only in condition that the Peloponnesian army should leave Boeotia, the terms were accepted. The Spartans vented their sorrow for the loss of Lysander in anger against their king. He was condemned to death, for having failed to keep trust with Lysander, and for having declined battle. It is not clear whether the first charge was well-founded. As for the second, no prudent general could have acted otherwise. Pausanias, who had discreetly refrained from returning to Sparta, spent the rest of his life as an exiled at Tegea. The result of this double blow to the Spartans, their prestige tarnished and their ablest general fallen, was the conclusion of a league against her by the four most important states. Thebes and Athens were now joined by Corinth and Argos. This alliance was soon increased by the addition of the Obeans, the Acarnians, the Chalcedians of Thrace, and other minor states. Perhaps the most active spirit in this insurgent movement was the Theban Ismenias. This leader succeeded in expelling the Spartans from their northern post, Heraclea, 
and spreading the Theban alliance among the peoples of those regions. Sparta lost her foothold in Thessaly, and the Phocians, who were under the protection of a Spartan Harmost, were defeated. Thus, the situation of Greece and the prospects of Sparta were completely changed. The allies, when spring came, gathered together their forces at the Isthmus, and it was proposed by one bold Corinthian to march straight on Sparta and burn out the wasps in their nest. But the Lacedaemonians were already advancing through Arcadia to Sicyon, from which place they crossed over by Nemea to the southern shores of the Saronic Gulf, a movement somewhat hampered by the allies who had reached Nemea. The allies then took up a post near Corinth, and a battle was fought. The number of combatants on each side was unusually large for a Greek battle. The Spartans on their wing decisively routed the Athenians, and though on the other wing their subjects were routed, it was distinctly a Spartan victory. The losses of the Confederates were more than twice as great as those of their foes. Some unrecorded feat of arms was achieved in this battle by five Athenian horsemen who lost their lives. And, in the burying ground outside the Dipylon gate of Athens, we may still see the funeral monument of one of these five knights, Dexileos, a youth of twenty, who is portrayed, according to Greek habit, not in the moment of his death, but in the moment of victory, spearing a hoplite who has fallen under his horse's hoofs. Strategically, the Confederates lost nothing, the victors gained nothing by the Battle of Corinth. The Isthmus was left under the control of the Confederates, who were now free to oppose Agesilaus in Boeotia. For Agesilaus was bearing down on Boeotia. The Battle of Haliartus and the events which followed had decided the efforts to recall him from Asia, his presence being more pressingly needed in Europe. And with a heavy heart he was constrained to abandon his dazzling visions of Persian conquest. Agamemnon had to return to Mycenae without having taken Troy. He marched overland by a route which no army had traversed since the expedition of Xerxes through Thrace and Macedonia. At Amphipolis he received the news of the victory of Corinth, not excessively inspiriting. But even as he marched, the fate of his country's empire was being decided. The victory of Canaan at Nidus was the knell of the ambitions of Agesilaus. When his army reached Chironia, the sun suffered an eclipse, and the meaning of the phenomenon was explained by the news, which presently arrived, of the Battle of Nidus. To conceal from his army the full import of this news was the first duty of the general, and the second was to hasten on a battle, while it could still be concealed. Agesilaus had been reinforced by some contingents from Lacedaemon, as well as by troops from Phocis and Orchomenus but his main force consisted of the soldiers whom he had brought from Asia, among whom were some of the famous ten thousand, including Xenophon himself. The confederate army which had fought at Corinth was now in Boeotia, though hardly in the same strength, as a garrison must have been left to defend their important position near the Isthmus. The confederates established their camp in the district of Coronea, a favorable spot for blocking against the foe the road which leads to Thebes from Phocis, in the valley of the Cephasus. On the field where the Boeotians had thrown off Athenian rule half a century before, Athenians and Boeotians now joined to throw off the domination of Lacedaemon. Achesilaus advanced from the Cephasus. He commanded his own right wing, and the Argives who were on the confederate left fled before him without striking a blow. 
On the other side, the Thebans on the confederate right routed the Orchomenians on the Lacedaemonian left. Then the two victorious right wings wheeling round met each other, and the real business of the day began. The object of Agesilaus was to prevent the Thebans from joining and rallying their friends. The encounter of the hoplites is described as incomparably terrible by Xenophon, who was himself engaged in it. Agesilaus, whose bodily size was hardly equal to such a fray, was trodden underfoot and rescued by the bravery of his bodyguard. The pressure of the deep column of the Thebans pushed away through the Lacedaemonian array. Agesilaus was left master of the field. He erected a trophy, and the confederates asked for the burial truce. But though the Battle of Coronea, like the Battle of Corinth, was a technical victory for the Spartans, history must here again offer her congratulations to the side which was, superficially, defeated. In the chief action of the day, the Thebans had displayed superiority and thwarted the attempt of their enemy to cut them off. It was a great moral encouragement to Thebes for future warfare with Lacedaemon. And immediately it was a distinct success for the Confederates. When an aggressor cannot follow up his victory, the victory is strategically equivalent to a repulse. Agesilaus immediately evacuated Boeotia. That was the result of Coronea. He crossed over to the Peloponnesus from Delphi, as the Confederates commanded the road by Corinth. It was round Corinth that the struggle of the next years mainly centered in fitting accordance with the object of the war. Sparta was fighting for domination beyond the Peloponnesus. Her enemies were fighting to keep her within the Peloponnesus. The most effective way of accomplishing this design was to hold the gates of the peninsula between the Corinthian and Saronic gulfs and not let her pass out. With this view, long walls were built binding Corinth, on the one hand with its western port, Lechaion, and on the other with its eastern port, at Cencreae. Thus none could pass from the Peloponnesus into northern Greece without dealing with the defenders of these fortifications. Never had Lacedaemon been more helpless, almost a prisoner in her peninsula, and her maritime empire dissolved. This momentary paralysis of Lacedaemon proved the salvation of Athens. The restoration of Athens to her place among the independent powers of Greece at this juncture came about by curious means. The satrap Pharnabazus, who had done so much to aid Lysander in destroying her, now helped to bring about her resurrection. He had not forgiven Sparta for the injury which Agesilaus had inflicted on his province, and this rankling resentment was kept alive by the circumstance that, while the other Asiatic cities had unanimously declared against Sparta after the battle of Nidus, Abidas alone held out against himself under the Spartan Dracilidas. He exhibited his wrath by accompanying Conon and the fleet in the following spring to the shores of Greece to ravage the Spartan territory and to encourage and support the confederates. A Persian satrap within sight of Corinth and Salamis was a strange sight for Greece. His revengefulness stood Athens in good stead. When he returned home, he allowed Conon to retain the fleet and make use of it to rebuild the long walls of Athens and fortify the Piraeus. He even supplied money to inflict this crushing blow on Sparta, a blow which completely undid the chief result of the Peloponnesian War. The two long parallel walls connecting Athens with the Piraeus were rebuilt. The port was again made defensible, and the Athenians could feel once more that they were a free and independent people in the Grecian world.
Conan, who had wrought out their deliverance, erected a temple to the Canadian Aphrodite in the Piraeus, as a monument of his great victory. Never since the day of Salamis was there such cause for rejoicing at Athens, as when the fortifications were completed at the end of the autumn. As rebuilder of the walls, Conan might claim to be a second Themistocles. But the comparison only reminds us of the change which had come over Greece in a hundred years. It was through Persian support that Athens now under the auspices of Conan regained in part the position which she had won by her championship of Hellas against Persia under the auspices of Themistocles. She did not regain her former ascendancy or her former empire, but she was restored to an equality with the other powerful states of Greece. She could feel herself the peer of Thebes, Corinth and Argos, and of Sparta, now that Sparta had fallen from her high estate. The Athenians could now calmly maintain that defiance which they had boldly offered to Sparta by their alliance with Thebes. About the same time, the northern islands of Lemnus, Embrus, and Cyrus seemed to have been reunited to Athens, and she recovered her control of Delos, which the Spartans had taken from her. Caius, too, became her ally. It was of vital importance to the Lacedaemonians to gain command of the gates of the Peloponnesus by capturing some part of the line of defense, and thus Corinth becomes the center of interest. The Lacedaemonians established their headquarters at Sicyon, and from this base made a series of efforts to break through the lines of Corinth, efforts which were ultimately successful. Unluckily, the chronology is obscure and it cannot be decided whether these operations were partly concurrent with, or altogether subsequent to, the rebuilding of the long walls of Athens. In Corinth itself there was a considerable party favorable to Sparta. This party seems to have arranged a plot for violently overthrowing the oligarchy which was in power. But the design was suspected and prevented by the government, who caused the friends of Sparta to be massacred in cold blood in the marketplace and theater on the last day of the Feast of Euclea. The Corinthian government at the same time drew closer the bonds which attached it to the enemies of Sparta. By a remarkable measure, Corinth and Argos united themselves into a federal state. The boundary pillars were pulled up. The citizens enjoyed common rights. It would be interesting to know how this federal constitution was framed. But such an union had no elements of endurance. It was a merely political expedient. A considerable number of the Philo-Laconian party had escaped. Some still remained in the city, and these now managed to open a gate in the western wall and admit Praxitus, the commander at Sicyon, with Lacedaemonian mora of six hundred hoplites. Praxitus secured his position between the two walls by constructing a ditch and palisade across the intramural space on the side of Corinth. The Corinthians and their allies came down from the city, the palisade was torn up, a battle was fought, and the Lacedaemonians, completely victorious, captured the town of Lycaon, though not the port. Praxitus then pulled down part of the walls and made incursions into the Corinthian territory on the side of the Saronic Bay. But when winter set in, he disbanded his army, without making any provision for keeping the command of the Isthmus, and the Athenians came, with carpenters and masons, and repaired the breach in the walls. A warfare of raids was, at the same time, constantly carried on by the hostile parties from their posts at Corinth and Sicyon. 
In this warfare a force of mercenaries, trained and commanded by the Athenian Iphicrates, was especially conspicuous. They were armed as peltasts, with light shield and javelin, and this armor was far better suited for the conditions of camp life and the duties of the professional soldier than the armor of a hoplite. The employment of mercenaries had been growing, destined ultimately to supplant the institution of citizen armies. It was the wilder parts of Greece, like Crete, Aetolia, Acarnania, that chiefly supplied the mercenary troops. Iphicrates of Remnants, an officer of great energy and talent, recognized the importance of the professional peltast as a new element in Hellenic warfare, and immortalized his name in military history by reforming the peltast's equipment. His improvements consisted in lengthening the sword and the javelin, and introducing a kind of light leggings, known as Iphicrated boots. It is difficult to appreciate the full import of these changes, but they were clearly meant to unite effectiveness of attack with rapidity of motion. This enterprising officer and his peltasts won the chief honors of the Corinthian War. Achesilaus had been sent out to gain some more permanent successes than those which had been achieved by Proxidus. His brother Telusius cooperated with him by sea. The long walls were stormed, and the port of Lycaon was captured. In the following year he went forth again. It was the time of the Isthmian festival, and the games were about to be held in the presence of Poseidon at Isthmus. Agesilaus marched thither, interrupted the Corinthians and Argives who were beginning the celebration, and presided at the contest himself. When he retired, the Corinthians came and celebrated the festival over again. Some athletes won the same race twice. Agesilaus then captured the port of Pyrian on the promontory which forms the northern side of the inmost recess of the Corinthian Gulf. The importance of this capture lay in the fact that Pyrian connected Corinth with her allies in Boeotia. Its occupation was a threat to Boeotia, and the Boeotians immediately sent envoys to Agesilaus. The position was now reversed. The Spartans commanded the Isthmus passage, and by possessing Sasaian, Pyrian, Lycaean, as well as Sidon and Chromian on the Saronic Gulf, they entirely closed in Corinth, except on the side of Argolis. If Agesilaus felt himself the arbiter of Greece, his triumph was short. The situation was rescued by Iphicrates. In the garrison at Lycaean there were some men of Amicle, whose custom and privilege it was to return to their native place to keep the local feast of Hyacinthus. The time of this feast was now at hand, and they set out to return home by Sicyon and Arcadia, the only way open to them. But as it was not safe for a handful of men to march under the walls of Corinth, they were escorted most of the way to Sicyon by a mora of six hundred Lacedaemonian hoplites. As this escort was returning to Lycaon, Iphicrates and his peltasts issued from the gates of Corinth and attacked them. The heavy spearmen were worn out by the repeated assaults of the light troops, with which they were unable to cope, and a large number were destroyed. This event, though less striking and important, bore a resemblance to the famous calamity of Sphacteria. In both cases, Spartan warriors had been discomfited in the same way by the continuous attacks of inaccessible light troops, and in both cases a blow was dealt to the military prestige of Lacedaemon. The success of Iphicrates was a suggestive sign of the future which might be in store for the professional peltast. To Agesilaus, 
The news came at a moment when he was regarding with triumphant arrogance his captives and the Theban envoys. His pride was changed into chagrin. The army was plunged into sorrow, and only the relatives of those soldiers who had fallen in the battle moved about with the jubilant air of victors. Leaving another division as a garrison in Lycaon, Agesilaus returned home, skulking through Sicyon and the Arcadian cities at night, in order to avoid unkind remarks. Pyrene, Sidon, and Cromion were soon recovered by Iphicrates, and the garrison of Lycaon seems to have done no more than keep the gates of the Peloponnesus open. This was the result of the Corinthian War. Sparta had succeeded in breaking down the barrier which was to shut her out from North Greece, but she had sustained a serious loss and damage to her reputation. End of chapter 12, part 5